0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, January 9th. I'm Rachel Judas. And
1: I'm Daniel Davis. After a tense period with Iran, President Trump wants to turn the page. He delivered a speech on Wednesday, laying out his goals for peace and a nuclear deal. We'll unpack the latest details with Heritage Foundation expert, Luke Coffey.
0: And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top
1: news. President Trump addressed the nation on Wednesday, the morning after Iran fired over a dozen rockets at an air base in Iraq. That attack came as retaliation for the U.S., killing Iran's top commander, Qasim Soleimani. Here's part of what the president said.
2: Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you, the American people, should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world.
1: President Trump also spoke of the need for a new and more effective nuclear deal, and he urged Iran to end its support for terrorist activities in the Middle East.
2: Iran can be a great country. Peace and stability cannot prevail in the Middle East as long as Iran continues to foment violence unrest, hatred, and war. The civilized world must send a clear and unified message to the Iranian regime. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. It will not be allowed to go forward.
0: Iran says it will not turn over the black box to Boeing of the airplane that crashed Wednesday that killed all who were on board. The aircraft, operated by Ukraine International Airlines, was headed to Kiev but crashed outside of Tehran just minutes after taking off. CNBC reports that the plane was a Boeing 737-800, different from the 737 MAX that was grounded worldwide after two fatal crashes last year. This plane was delivered to Iran less than four years ago and had been inspected on Monday. The airline is denying pilot error behind the crash. Vice President of Operations Ior Sofnowski said, Given the crew's experience, air probability is minimal. We do not even consider such a chance. The dead include 82 Iranians and 63 Canadians, as well as 11 Ukrainians and some other European passengers.
1: Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell accused House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of shameless game-playing for refusing to send over articles of impeachment to the Senate. Those articles were passed by the House in December. Pelosi says she won't send over the articles until she sees the Senate's proposed rules for an impeachment trial. But McConnell says he's ready to move forward with the trial without an agreement on witnesses. And even some Senate Democrats are getting impatient with Pelosi. Dianne Feinstein, the top Senate Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, said, per Politico, the longer it goes on, the less urgent it becomes. So, if it's serious and urgent, send them over. If it isn't, Don't send it over. And Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, said, I respect the fact that she is concerned about the fact about whether or not there will be a fair trial. But I do think it is time to get on with it.
0: Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are relinquishing their role as senior members of the royal family. In a statement, the couple announced, After many months of reflection and internal discussions, We have chosen to make a transition this year and starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution. We intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. The two have also said that they are planning to split their time between the United Kingdom and North America and are expected to make Canada their second home. Buckingham Palace's Rural Communications has reportedly released a statement on Wednesday saying that the discussions with the couple are, quote, at an early stage.
1: Up next, a conversation with Luke Coffey about the latest developments out of Iran. Americans have almost entirely forgotten
3: their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History. A podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideals and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. President
1: Trump appears to be lowering the temperature with Iran after a series of military flares provoked fears of war. Joining me now to unpack the latest developments is Luke Coffey, director of the Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Luke, thanks for your time.
3: Thanks. It's my pleasure.
1: So, on Tuesday night, Iran launched over a dozen rockets at a U.S. base in Iraq. Um, this was in response to the U.S. having killed its top general, Qasem Soleimani. What do you think Iran's objective was?
3: Well, their objective was to um, show that they are striking back against the United States to save face in the eyes of their public, but to do so in a way that does not provoke the United States uh, even more to retaliate back. Uh, And actually one important distinction to make Um, is that uh, these are Iraqi bases inside Iraq where American soldiers are located. These aren't U.S. bases. And this is important to point out because this was a very uh, big violation of Iraq's sovereignty as well, that Iran would uh, shoot these missiles inside (laughs) Iraq's territory at Iraqi bases where, yes, of course, U.S. soldiers were located. And in one case in northern Iraq, uh, the, the one missile landed in, in Erbil at the airport, which um, is both a civilian airport and also has military personnel. So it's highly provocative what Iran did.
1: So you said that they were trying to save face with the public in Iran while also not doing too much to provoke the U.S. again. Do you think they achieved that? Or did they do enough to – appease the population in Iran who was upset over this?
3: Well, for now, the answer I would say is yes. And because in Iran, the way the government controls the narrative and controls the messages, it's very easy for them to spin this into some great military success. I mean, in reality, we know that they fired 15 missiles. Uh, One landed at the airport in Erbil. Uh, Four uh, landed somewhere in the desert. And then the remaining uh, missiles landed on that base in western Iraq. And there were no U.S. or Iraqi or coalition casualties and very minimal damage to facilities on these bases. So it was enough, I think, where the regime in in Iran could go to its people and say, look, we struck back. And there's already these wild rumors flying around on social media about – um, uh, so many U.S. service personnel wounded and being treated secretly in Israel. and Of course, Iran has to like drag in Israel into the, the, the <laughs> and this somehow. And, you know, we all know this is nonsense And the way our system of government works here. There's no way the U.S. government could cover up something like this. Uh, but it's enough where the Iranians um, probably were able to save face and um, had an off-ramp. And I think President Trump recognized that, and that was clear by the tone of his uh, remarks today. So It seems like the president
1: sort of called Iran's bluff. I mean, they'd been talking a really big game for months, and now they sort of blinked.
3: That's true. Uh, certainly, President Trump comes out on top of all of this in many ways, and even some of his strongest critics uh, have a- acknowledged this point as well. Uh President Trump looks stronger. Iran looks weaker. Um, President Trump over the past several months has shown a lot of restraint against Iranian aggression there have been numerous occasions where the US would have been justified to uh, strike back and President Trump chose not to always trying to leave that door open for negotiations and in fact I suspect that this proposal to take out Qasem Soleimani was not the first time he was given this this option and uh, because uh ambassador bolton tweeted over the weekend that uh, this was a long time coming which leads me to think that at least during his time in the white house this was a proposal that was being floated around and president trump declined it so i think the president felt like he really had no other choice he had to show the iranians that you know the u.s means business and that's what he did and paradoxically uh this the the demise of qasem suleimani uh might be looked upon as the, the de-escalatory strike. It was, That's the strike that de-escalated the situation. How so? Well, because until this point, the Iranians thought they could keep going and going and going, and the U.S. would just kind of tinker on the edges uh, in terms of its response. And then that response was so great, that impact It was so great, I don't think we can overstate how important – someone like Qasem Soleimani is to to the whole Iranian security apparatus. And whenever he was taken out, I think it probably gave um, uh, some room for pause in Iran. And they probably thought, whoa, okay, um, can we afford another severe blow like this if we push the Americans too far when we retaliate?
1: Yeah, President Trump had talked about how during the Obama administration, U.S. credibility as a deterrent force had really eroded. So do you think this reestablished American credibility?
3: Certainly so. In the eyes of the Iranians, I would say the deterrence has been reestablished. In the eyes of our partners in the region, who, to be honest, I think some are questioning American resolve over the past few months because a lot of things were happening— International oil tankers were being hit, uh, a massive oil production facility in Saudi Arabia had been um, taken offline by an Iranian attack. Uh, a U.S. drone was shot down by uh, Iran in international airspace. And yes, it was just a drone without a pilot, but this drone cost almost $180 million. A- and there were no U.S. responses. And then finally, um, I think enough was enough, and uh, – we now see that Qasem Soleimani is dead and I think this sends a very strong message to the region to both friend and foe alike.
1: President Trump in his uh, speech on Wednesday to the nation proposed new economic sanctions on Iran. Um given that Iran's already under lots of sanctions what more can can the U.S. do in this area?
3: Well, there is one kebab shop that's left. No, no, in, all, in, in all serious, this is a very good question. There are uh, further areas that can can be sanctioned, uh, further banking and in other industries. Uh, the point with sanctions is that you have to fa- you have to leave room for maneuver. Uh, so we hear this term maximum pressure campaign, but there are. There are ways that we can increase the sanctions more. And yes, we have to get more and more creative uh, as we do this, but it's not as if every aspect of every industry in Iran has been totally sanctioned to the point where the US can't apply more sanctions.
1: You know, we've often heard from uh, our colleague here, uh, Jim Phillips at the Heritage Foundation, that Iran thinks in Uh, very long cycles, think in terms of centuries, not in short news cycles. Do you think that there will be ramifications in later years for the the killing of Qasem Soleimani, that that they'll have a long memory about that?
3: For sure, without a doubt. And I don't think we've actually seen the true impact of his demise yet. I think it will probably take years for us to see the impact of it. Uh, But in terms of how the Iranians will look at it, um, well, actually, I think there's a good argument to be made About last night's strike not being um, the only way that Iran will retaliate because of Soleimani's death. Uh, Yes, I understand those arguments that even I just made about them saving face and it being an off-ramp. But also, there's a small part of me that thinks, well, you know, maybe that was a feint. Maybe uh, they want everyone to think that. Everything is calm. Everything is now okay, And we perhaps over a period of months become more complacent. And then they do something that's even crazier. Uh, I think it's unlikely, but I would not completely rule it out because they do have very long memories. And we should not underestimate the impact that the demise of Qasem Soleimani will have. He was a very uh, talented almost special individual. He had a unique knack for unconventional warfare. This is a guy who had only four or five years of formal education. He left his home at age 14 to work in construction. And by his early 20s, he was commanding a division during the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. And then he's just spent the past 20 years setting the Middle East on fire. um, And it all finally caught up with him. But nevertheless, he's not going to be replaced very easily because he is a a he was a unique individual. And it's going to leave a huge gaping hole in Iran's uh, capabilities. And as we have seen in, in, in Iran with the the the, um, the mourning and the the tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people who have come onto the streets uh, to say their goodbyes to Qasem Soleimani. Yes, of course, this is Iran. And it wouldn't be the first time that the government has orchestrated something like this or forced people to go out and do this. But actually, I think most of this is probably genuine. Uh, the Iranians view him as a national hero and have viewed him as such uh, for a number of reasons, not because he um, he was uh, very effective at what he did. But also he um, he was always seen as one of these guys who came from nothing, who sort of rose to the top and didn't get too corrupted along the way. He was never very flashy. He wasn't the type of Iranian uh, uh, elite who would, you know, uh, have uh uh, house in France or wear designer clothes. He was a very humble person. And because of that, he was popular among many Iranians. And uh, so the outcry that you see is, is probably genuine. Uh, uh, although some of it probably is uh, choreographed, but I would say for the most part is real. So this has left a huge hole. This is a hu- the, 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 this has made a huge impression on the Iranian people and also the Iranian elite. And there, like I said, there is a small part me that thinks that they're not going to let this slide so easily and we should remain vigilant and we should remain with our guard up for the foreseeable future.
1: Well, also on Wednesday, President Trump um, shifted away from overt military action um, and said he wants to get a new deal, a new nuclear deal with Iran. Um, what, are the prox- what are the prospects for that at this point, um, especially as we've seen deteriorating relations with Iran and and that the, uh, the, the old Iran deal is, is, is dead?
3: Well, this is President Trump's style. He, uh, he prefers negotiation. He prefers making a deal. Uh, his instincts are not to go to war. He does not want to go to war with Iran. He's not looking for a fight. Uh, he, the last thing he wants during an election year is um, Operation Persian Freedom. Uh, he, this would be hugely unpopular for him and most Americans don't want it either. Uh, so he's always kept this door open for a deal, and even in his uh, speech he gave us today uh, from the White House, he suggested, he even went so far as to suggest that there are areas that Iran and the U.S. can cooperate on, in terms of defeating ISIS, for example, uh, which which um, is a pretty bold statement to make. Uh, which of course ISIS is the enemy of both Iran and the United States, but that doesn't necessarily make the United States and Iran uh, partners. But it was a very bold statement to make, and I think it sends a signal that he is willing to keep that door open for uh, diplomacy, and I think that's very important.
1: So in terms of a nuclear deal, I mean, where do you even start at this point for on a new deal?
3: Well, right now, we're back at the basics of confidence building. Um, we're nowhere close to uh, the Iranians and the Americans sitting around the table and hammering out a new deal at this point. Uh, I think that uh, it's going to take a we'll, – we'll need a period of months of calmness and hopefully that's what we're entering right now. If Iran is smart, um, President Trump has shown today that he's, he doesn't want to escalate it anymore. If the Iranians are smart, they won't escalate it anymore and we can see where we go in the next few months.
1: I'm just curious, your your take in Iran. Do you think a Do you think a nuclear deal now with the U.S. would be seen as submitting to the U.S.?
3: Well, I don't know if the regime really has to worry about that. You know, they don't have to worry about public opinion in the same way that democracies do, and they can control the narrative a lot better. That's why they can lob 15 missiles into Iraq, 11 of which only hit the target. Four completely miss altogether, and they claim as a, being some great military success. Only in Iran can you do that, or in perhaps North Korea or a few other very closed societies. Uh, the Iran deal itself wasn't all the, – the original JCPOA uh, deal agreed under Obama wasn't all that popular in some parts of Iran anyway. Uh, many of the the average Iranian who thought the lifting of sanctions was going to bring new economic opportunities never saw that economic windfall. It mainly helped many of the elites at the very top. Um, and then there was an internal debate inside the Iranian leadership about the merits of this deal. I mean this deal was never passed by their Majlis, which is their version of the parliament. Uh, so it wasn't exactly um, – uh, widely supported in Iran at the time either. I mean, it was a very controversial deal, whether it was in Washington or Tehran. Uh, Really, the only place that enjoyed huge levels of popularity was Europe. Do you
1: think that the Iran deal contributed to the current situation with Iran?
3: Well, certainly it emboldened them with uh, lots of cash and money and diplomatic legitimacy. It emboldened their... um, their uh, willingness to, well, assert themselves more on the global stage because they were treated as um, – well, they're sort of taken out of the pariah camp and brought more into the mainstream. Uh, you know, President Trump's claim today that that um, the money they were given because of the Iran deal uh, funded the missiles that were used to attack U.S. forces – it was very tenuous. It's difficult to prove that. I mean this money was – there's no doubt in my mind the money that they got from the deal was used to fuel their their proxy forces and their uh, export of terrorism across the Middle East. And, but I mean in terms of like assigning a certain amount of money to certain missiles, I think it's probably very difficult if not impossible to do. But I think it was – I don't think President Trump meant that literally. I think it was more of an illustrative point. That when when you give 150 – when you unfreeze $150 billion in cash and you give it to the Iranians um, almost overnight, when you remove uh, major international sanctions um, overnight, they're going to enjoy certain benefits. And the reality is they weren't using this money to build new schools and roads and hospitals in Iran. Um, Their behavior across the Middle East – after signing the Iran deal with the with President Obama, did not change. Yes, they had more restrictions on their nuclear production. Um, they they weren't perfect restrictions, that's for sure. They they were restricted, but not completely restricted. But in terms of their other malign acts, uh, supporting proxy groups and and fighting in Yemen and Syria, in in Iraq and Lebanon. Uh, They continue to do so, and in fact, increase the sort of activity. So it had zero impact on their behavior in the in the in the region.
1: I want to ask you about Iraq too. After the killing of Soleimani, uh, the Iraqi Parliament voted for U.S. forces to leave Iraq. How does all of this bode for the U.S. Iraqi relationship?
3: We should remember that this vote that was taken a few days ago in the Iraqi Parliament was non-binding. Vote So it was symbolic. And about half of the parliamentarians didn't even show up to vote. Um, Only the parliamentarians linked to Shia parties, which are closely aligned with certain groups in Iran, showed up to vote. The Sunni and Kurdish-dominated parties, they boycotted the vote. So Iraq is divided on this issue. We should not pretend that every Iraqi wants the U.S. to leave, and we shouldn't also pretend that every Iraqi wants the U.S. to stay I think it's a little more complicated than that, and, and but for sure, the U.S. Um, is not going to be kicked out anytime soon from, from Iraq. And I think even those um, Iraqi statesmen, the Iraqi parliamentarians, lawmakers, officials, uh, regardless if they're Sunni, Shia, or Kurdish, they know that despite some of their rhetoric about wanting the U.S. forces to leave, they know they they do not want a repeat of 2011 when U.S. forces were removed by President Obama and a few months later ISIS is on the gates of Baghdad. No one wants a repeat of that. So a lot of the stuff I would say is for domestic Consumption, Um, you know, politicians in Baghdad have constituents in the same way politicians in Washington or London or Paris do as well. Sometimes things are said and done to cater to that constituency. And that's probably what we're seeing a lot of today in Iraq.
1: In his speech, uh, President Trump also called on NATO to play a greater role in the Middle East. Um, what's been keeping NATO from taking on a greater role and what would that look like? Yeah.
3: Well, I fell out of my chair when I heard that. As someone who focuses most – of, most of my career has been focused on, on NATO and transatlantic security. I couldn't believe uh, – I didn't know where he was going with it, if I'm honest with you, and there are no further details. Uh, NATO is um, – N- NATO's area of responsibility, if you look at the original 1949 treaty, is the North Atlantic region north of the Tropic of Cancer – Right, So it's mainly uh, the European region. Yes, the NATO forces are in Afghanistan after 9-11, but I think that was a a result of, at that time, NATO not sure what its mission was. It didn't really have the same mission that it had during the Cold War. But now with Russia back on the march in Europe, fighting in Ukraine, uh, occupying parts of Ukraine, threatening the Baltic states, threatening NATO members, I think NATO as an institution should remain focused in Europe. It do doesn't need to be in the Middle East. But that being said, remember, NATO is a collection of countries. So while NATO as an institution probably shouldn't take a bigger role in the Middle East, the countries that form NATO should probably play a bigger role in the Middle East.
1: I mean, do you think that was maybe just Trump signaling he wants the U.S. to, to distance itself and, and other European countries to take more of a Exactly. Footprint?
3: If I was translating that from from Trump language... I would say that it was Americans have done enough yeah. in the Middle East. No more stupid wars. It's time for others to do more, and Europe should do more. He doesn't. He I don't think he really meant NATO. I think he actually means Europe. <laughs>
1: but who knows? Well, in a in a separate news story, um, a Ukrainian airliner crashed uh, just outside of, of Tehran uh, minutes after it took off, and only hours after Iran had launched its rocket attacks on Iraq. Um, the, the crash killed all 176 people on board. Um, what do you make of this? Could this, I mean, some are speculating that this, this, uh, the timing of it and the location signals, this could have been an accidental strike by Iranian rockets.
3: It's very tragic and sad. And, um, I, I feel, I feel bad for all the passengers and their families and the crew that were on that plane. Uh, who, the question or the, the reality is we don't know right now what happened, um, but because of the circumstances, you cannot rule out that the plane wasn't accidentally shot down, but we don't know. And there are all these, uh, stories out there now. Th- the Iranians are not going to share the black box and, but there are pictures that are surfacing on social media. So no doubt the, you know, these, uh, f- forensic experts that are online will be piecing together the clues and we'll have, a bit more of a picture in the in the coming days, I suspect. But I think it was highly responsible of the Iranians to um, launch an attack like this and, and at the same time allow planes to land and depart from their major civilian international airports. Uh, presumably they knew that this rocket attack, it was 15 rockets – Who knows how much time it took to fire off these 15 rockets, but I'm going to guess probably not very much. Uh, So why couldn't they just temporarily close the airspace? They gave the Iraqis apparently a warning that this attack was coming. Um, The U.S. actually uh, uh, last night issued – the FAA issued a warning to U.S. aircraft in the Gulf that because of heightened military activity, they were to avoid certain regions of the Middle East. Uh, so the, I don't know why the Iranians didn't think to do the same thing. Was this plane accidentally shot down? Who knows? Was it a terrorist attack? Who knows? Or was it an accident? Who knows? Uh, and, and we may never know the truth because of where this uh, this accident this uh, this uh, tragedy happened, but. It does just further complicate the situation because it's Iran, because it happened the same night that these attacks were taking place. And then you throw in the fact that it's Ukraine and with their war going on and the bad luck that country's had. It's just sad all around.
1: So one of the recent controversies this week has been whether the U.S. would attack Iranian cultural sites. Uh, President Trump recently hinted at that but then said he wouldn't do it. Um, Our colleague here at Heritage, Jim Carafano, has pointed out that uh, Iran um, maybe hides its facilities under cultural sites or mixes that category. Can you explain what that's about?
3: Well, it has been known that Iran has had some of its nuclear facilities near historical sites, religious sites, uh, and that's always created a problem. They've sort of used these locations as a protection uh, so to speak but the US military is uh, very used to operating in environments with uh, cultural sites and religious sites and uh, for example i remember when i was serving in afghanistan uh, you, we could not return fire like artillery fire for example uh, when rockets were launched at us if the location that we're, where we were firing was within a certain proximity of even a library or a school, so the U.S. is very careful about this, and and I cannot imagine a situation where the the Department of Defense would uh, willingly uh, and for no apparent reason other than to strike it, target uh, a cultural site because these cultural sites in Iran, they're not the Islamic Republic's cultural sites. In many ways, these belong to the world. Um, these date back thousands of years. Um, you know uh, Iran, the Persian people are one of the great civilizations of the world and and we should never allow the Islamic Republic to hijack that and to think that they have some sort of unique uh control or ownership of that. Uh, so I I don't know what President Trump was saying at the time or what he meant, but he did quickly walk this back. So I don't think uh, he really had in mind that he was going to attack UNESCO sites uh, in Iran. <laughs> uh, but certainly Iran has a history of putting some of their research facilities and some of their production facilities near these important sites.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll keep following all of this, The Daily Signal. Uh, Luke Coffey, really appreciate your, your time today. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation.
0: Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify. And please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts to give us any feedback.
1: We'll see you again tomorrow.
0: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Leah Rampersad, and Mark Geiny. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.